Father, we just take a moment to thank you for Shiloh Family Campground, to thank you for the work that you are accomplishing there, and um, just blessing your people who come to get away uh, to a place of rest, Father, um, and also um, to reach out to any unbelievers who come, Lord, that, that uh, they can see there a testimony of a, a, a couple who live for Christ, and Lord, that they're um, there are opportunities to hear the gospel, to hear about Christ and what he's done and how he can save them. Lord, we thank you for a place like that. Um, and we thank you for the privilege that you've given us as a church to come alongside them, to support them, Lord, um, and to uh, offer comfort to them, Owen and Sabrina, when they need to be comforted um, when ministry gets hard. And Lord, we give our time to you this morning in your word. We pray that you would bless it, that you, by your Spirit, would come alongside of us and help us open up your word to us, prepare our hearts to hear what your word has to say to us, um, and help us, Lord, to have ears to hear and hearts that are ready to listen and trust in you and obey and walk um, in a manner worthy of you, Lord. May you feed us by your word this morning. May you continue to conform us to the image of your Son, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll open up to Hebrews, we're in chapter 13, verses 20 to 21. So we're getting very close to the end. We won't quite finish Hebrews today, uh, but Lord willing, next week. Um, but verses 20 and 21, it's a benediction. It's a prayer. It's a declaration over these believers that the preacher um, utters at the end of his letter here. So Hebrews 13, starting in verse 20, says, Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. For something to expend energy, energy must first be supplied. For example, a fire cannot throw any heat if you do not supply wood or coal, fuel for it to burn and produce that heat. Even the sun itself will eventually run out of fuel and burn itself out unless there were to be an outside source that would provide it with more energy, more fuel to burn. And it's the same with our physical life. We need to eat food in order for our food to digest, or our body to digest that food, convert it to energy so that we can keep going on. We need energy. That is what makes the atheistic worldview so illogical. How did the universe get up and running if there was no one to jumpstart it, no one to supply the energy needed to set it into motion? In fact, nothing can have a beginning at all unless there is someone eternal, someone who has no beginning, who has no end, someone who is completely self-sufficient, who can create and then sustain that creation without ever diminishing himself in any way. And the Bible tells us that there is someone like that, and that someone is the triune God. In fact, at the very beginning of this letter, Hebrews chapter 1 the preacher who was writing this letter, he points out to us the Son of God in particular. 
And in verse 2 of that chapter, he says that Jesus, the Son of God, is the one through whom God made the world. And then in verse 3, he tells us that not only did Jesus create the world, but also that he upholds all things by the word of his power. So his word, that is the energy that sustains all of creation. That is why this whole thing works. That is why we are sitting here today drawing breath, because Christ is upholding us by his powerful word. Now, is that only true of physical things? If you were to look at chapter 12 and verse 9 of the book of Hebrews, we find that this is true also of the spiritual world. And that verse, at the end of verse 9, God the Father is called the Father of Spirits. The Father of Spirits. So we see there that all things owe their existence and their continued existence to this God. Physical things and spiritual things. And the reason that I'm going on about this, it has no perceivable connection to the verses I just read, but I do want to, to help you to see that this also applies to our faith. Our faith does not just spring out of nowhere. Our faith does not just carry on in and of itself. God is the one who creates it within us and who sustains it. And last time we saw how the preacher asked this congregation to pray for him and to pray for the other leaders. But now, here in verses 20 to 21, the preacher pauses to pray for them himself. And he prays for them because he knows what he has just finished exhorting them to do throughout this whole letter is something that they cannot do in and of their own strength. They cannot persevere in faith. They cannot persevere in good works unless there is an outside power source, a divine person working within them to enable them to persevere in this way. And so he prays for them. And his prayer that we'll look at this morning will remind us of where our only hope of salvation, our only hope of persevering in the faith lies. And he begins by calling upon the source of our perseverance. The source of our perseverance. Verse 20, he starts out by saying, Now the God of peace. The God of peace. Our God is the God of peace. He is characterized by peace. Now in the Old and New Testaments, peace, that word carries the idea of completeness or wholeness, or well-being. And our God, being the God of peace, he is a God who is complete, who lacks for nothing. Our God does not need anything, and he does not need anyone. He is eternally content and satisfied with himself and by himself as the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And because our God is infinite and inexhaustible, peace he is able to give us peace. Now this idea that God gives peace, that's most likely what he's talking about here at the beginning of verse 20. He's the God of peace in that he gives his people peace. He gives his people peace. And he alone is the one who can give us peace. Peace is found nowhere else. And as sinners, we need peace, don't we? Because far from being complete, far from being whole, far from being satisfied, we have broken our relationship with God. 
We've broken our relationship with each other. We've broken our relationship with our world because of our sin. We need God to give us peace, to restore our relationship with him, to rescue us from his wrath against our sin. We need this God of peace to save us by his grace toward us in Christ through faith. And as believers, we need God to keep us in faith by that same grace toward us in Christ. We need him to keep us in his peace. Remember, he is the self-sufficient one. We are the creatures. We cannot keep ourselves since we are not self-sufficient. We need the self-sufficient one to keep us. Jesus said in John chapter 14 and verse 27, he said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. These believers that the preacher was writing to, they were troubled and they were fearful. They were facing death. They were facing persecution. They needed the God of peace to sustain them, to carry their faith through this time. And we need the same thing. So that is the source of our perseverance, the God of peace, the God of wholeness who alone can make us whole. And as he goes on in this prayer, he shows us the ground of our perseverance, the ground of our perseverance. He says, Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. This is the foundational reason of why the preacher can call upon this God at all on behalf of these believers, because God is holy. What business do sinners have to be able to draw near to the holy God? What expectation can we possibly have of receiving a kind response from a holy God knowing that we are sinners? Well, this is the grounds for this request, the grounds for our perseverance. This is the reason why this God is someone we can turn to to sustain us in our faith. He says that this God is not only the God of peace, but he is the God who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. Now most commentators agree that that phrase there that I just repeated is drawn from Isaiah chapter 63 and verse 11. I want you to turn there for a moment. Isaiah chapter 63 and verse 11. In this chapter, the first six verses, Isaiah is speaking of the coming wrath of God upon the nations. And then in verses 7 through 14, Isaiah is speaking of Israel and how Israel was redeemed by God, saved by God from Egypt, but how they fell away from God and God became their enemy. And now, Isaiah is writing this from the standpoint of Israel having disobeyed God and now suffering the discipline of God and they're asking themselves questions. Where is this God? And that's what we find in verse 11 here. It says, Then his people remembered the days of old, of Moses. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit in the midst of them? 
So you see that first question there in the middle of verse 11, asking, where is God who brought Israel up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? His shepherds there most likely referring to Moses and Aaron. Now, it's, it'd be hard for you to make the connection between that verse and Hebrews 13, but we have to bear in mind that this preacher most often quoted from the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. That was the Bible that the people of God at this time most often used, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And that verse, that middle portion, reads this way. Then he remembered the ancient days, saying, Where is he that brought up from the sea the shepherd of the sheep? Where is he that brought up from the sea the shepherd of the sheep? That sounds a little bit more familiar, a little bit more similar to our verse here in Hebrews. God who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. Now in Isaiah 63 verse 11 the reference to shepherd in that passage is a reference to Moses and how God brought Moses and the people on dry ground through the sea during the Exodus. Now if you remember Moses he grew up in Egypt and the time came when he was about 40 years old that he saw an Egyptian beating an Israelite, a Hebrew And Moses understood that he himself was actually a Hebrew, and so he rose up to defend that Hebrew slave by killing that Egyptian. And he got exiled from Egypt. He fled the Pharaoh when he heard that the Pharaoh found out what had happened. And so he spent those 40 years in Midian, and you remember that God met with Moses in the burning bush. And do you know what Moses was doing at the time that God met with him? What was he doing? Anybody remember? Yeah, shepherding sheep. He was a shepherd for his father-in-law. He was a shepherd. And so God meets with him, and God calls him to go back to Egypt to deliver his people. And Moses, he offers all these excuses and of why he can't do it. And God says, what is that in your hand? The staff. And he says, throw it on the ground, it turns into a snake. And that staff would actually be an instrument that God would put in the hand of Moses to use in bringing about these miracles. God chose to coordinate his activity with the movements of that staff, that shepherd's staff. And in fact, when you remember how they left Egypt and they came up to the sea and the Egyptian army was bearing down on the people, remember what God told Moses, that former shepherd, to do with that shepherd's staff, to raise it up over the sea, and then God split the sea. So Moses was a shepherd, and a shepherd of the people of God. And when they came through that sea, it was as if God had raised them from the dead. Because did the people expect to survive that situation as they saw the Egyptians bearing down on them? No, they thought for sure they were going to all die. But God brought them safely through the sea, and he drowned that whole army. It was as if he brought them up from the dead. And then after that, we know that the people are brought to Mount Sinai, where God establishes his covenant with them. But the people eventually rebel against God, and they taste the wrath of God. Moses, being a shepherd of his people, was yet a mere man, and he could not keep his people from breaking that covenant. 
But now look at what the preacher says here in verse 20. He says, The God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd. Now God has brought up from the dead the great shepherd. One greater than Moses has come. A greater shepherd. And this shepherd has not been brought up from the dead, figuratively speaking, like Moses was being brought through the sea. No, this great shepherd has been brought up from the dead, literally speaking. He literally died, and he has literally been raised from the dead. Now, what does that imply regarding how this shepherd shepherds his people? Well, it implies that as Moses shepherded his people through the sea, this shepherd will shepherd his people through what? Death. Death. He will shepherd his people through death itself. As the sea could not overwhelm Moses' people, so death will not be able to overwhelm this great shepherd's people. And this is something these believers need to hear because they're facing persecution that could result in their death. They need to know that their shepherd can carry them through that. But this raises a question that doesn't exactly give a lot of hope yet because we remember the Israelites and we remember how they ended up, right? They were brought through the sea, this great deliverance, but then they all died in the wilderness, that first generation, because of their unbelief. So what assurance do we as Christians who have our own shepherd, our own shepherd that we're following, what assurance do we have that the outcome for us will be any different than it was for that first generation of Israelites? Well, the preacher says that this great shepherd who was brought up from the dead, he was brought up from the dead through the blood of the eternal covenant. Through the blood of the eternal covenant. Covenant. He's contrasting Jesus with Moses, the covenant that Jesus instituted with the covenant that Moses instituted. Moses mediated a temporary covenant to his people. And this was a covenant that could not change the people's hearts. God's law was written on tablets of stone rather than on the hearts of the people. And the Mosaic Covenant was instituted by the blood of animals, blood that could only cleanse the people in a merely external and ceremonial sense. But what about the new covenant that Jesus has mediated? Jesus has mediated an eternal covenant. And this covenant does change people's hearts. God's law has not been written on tablets of stone, but it's been written on the very hearts of this shepherd's people. So the law of God is no longer something that is constraining the people, just keeping them in line. Now the law of God is written on our hearts, motivating us to follow him now. You see the difference. And this new covenant has been instituted not by the blood of bulls and goats, but by the blood of Jesus himself, whose blood is able to fully cleanse our consciences from sin to serve the living God. And notice that this covenant that Jesus instituted, it is so powerfully effective for redeeming his people. Sin was so completely paid for that death which is sin's penalty, could not hold him. He was brought up from the dead. 
And because death cannot hold Jesus, it cannot hold his sheep, his flock. This great shepherd is Jesus, our Lord. Jesus did everything in our place. He lived a righteous life in our place. He died on the cross for our sins in our place. And the fact that he's alive tells us that what he did was totally effective. And therefore, we who have turned from our sins and placed our trust in him, we who are the people of Christ, we too will be raised up from the dead. We will be guided by our shepherd through death and we will come out on the other side safely. That is the whole reason why we can call upon the holy God. That is why God has anything to do with us at all. He sent his son to pay the penalty to institute this new covenant so that we could be made whole, so that we could be reconciled to him. And now we can call on him to help us persevere in our faith. This work that Jesus has done is the grounds of our perseverance. So we understand how Jesus' work has reconciled us to God so that we can experience his peace. And we understand how Jesus' work rescues us from death because he, our great shepherd, will shepherd us through death. But a huge question that the warnings of the letter to the Hebrews raised in our minds is, what assurance do I have that I will be any different from the Israelites? Yes, he's reconciled me to God. He's given me hope for life after death. But I know that Salvation is by faith. What assurance do I have that I will keep believing, that I won't fall into unbelief like the Israelites do? What assurance do I have? Can I be sure that once God has saved me, I will not turn away from him down the road and perish? Will I be faithful to heed the warnings given in this letter? Well, that assurance is given us, given to us in verse 21. And this, in this verse, the first part of this verse, we see the cause of our perseverance. The cause of our perseverance. It doesn't lie within us. It lies within God. And what we're about to read in verse 21 here, it's the main request for which the preacher is praying to God. So in verse 20 he says, Now the God of peace, what is he asking him to do? Verse 21, May the God of peace equip you in every good thing, to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. When God gives us his peace in Jesus Christ, he brings a wholeness to us, a completeness to our lives. Our legal standing before him is immediately made whole because our sins have been forgiven. Because the moment when we turn to Christ, he clothed us with the righteousness of Christ. Our legal standing before God was made whole. We were brought to be at peace with God. But God doesn't leave it at that. When we're saved, he also begins the process of bringing a wholeness to our character and to our way of living. This word for equip that the preacher is asking God to do in us, equip us. This word is defined in this context by one Greek lexicon this way. It is to cause to be in a condition to function well. It is to put in order. It is to restore. It is to put in proper condition. The preacher is asking God 
to make us work, to be what God created us to be, a people who want to follow him, to equip us in that way. So you see, God does not simply forgive us and then leave us on our own to strive under our own power to keep ourselves in the faith, to purify ourselves, to work up the energy somehow within ourselves to follow Christ. No, he equips us. And he doesn't only equip us in the sense of giving us the tools we need to remain faithful to him. You know, in that case, we would still need some kind of power in and of ourselves to put those tools into use. No, he also does what it says in verse 21 here. He works in us that which is pleasing in his sight. He works within us, strengthening the new hearts he's given us, strengthening those new desires that he's given us, fueling our faith to trust in him and to continue to live in a manner that pleases him. Now, how does he do this? He doesn't mention it in these verses, but God, we know from the rest of the scriptures, God uses certain means through which he works within us. There's meditating on the word of God, prayer, gathering together on the Lord's day, baptism, the Lord's supper. God uses these things in our lives and he works through these things to perform this work in our hearts to sustain our faith. And the more that you cultivate those things in your life, the more that God will equip you and work within you through his spirit. But, but this work that God does, that God takes upon himself to perform in our hearts that causes our perseverance, this work of God is one of the glorious guarantees that we have in the new covenant. We read one of those passages for our call to worship in Jeremiah 31, where it says that God has written his law on our heart. But I also want you to look at Jeremiah chapter 32, Turn to Jeremiah chapter 32. And we'll look at verses 38 to 40. This is another new covenant passage. Jeremiah 32 verse 38. God says this regarding his people says, they shall be my people and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And notice the end of verse 40. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that what? so that they will not turn away from me. See, it's the same thing. God is working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. He's working that perseverance in us. Now turn to Ezekiel 36, another new covenant passage. Ezekiel 36. Starting in verse 24. God says, 
Again, regarding his people. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Verse 27, I will put my spirit within you. Resulting in what? I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to follow my, or to observe my ordinances. You see what is going on there. God, in giving his people new hearts, he also gives them all the fuel required to keep our faith burning to the very end. All of this has been given to us through the work of Jesus Christ. Christ purchased our perseverance at the cross. This is a guarantee of the new covenant. Now, what is the purpose of all of this? Why would God do this? Why would God give so much, do so much for sinners like you and me, people who were enemies of God, deserving his wrath, Well, the preacher closes his prayer here by saying, To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's the purpose. The purpose is the glory of God. God has done this. The God of peace sent his Son to purchase for us the grounds of our perseverance, and he is causing us to persevere through the work that he does in our own hearts, and he does this for the glory of his own name. The glory of God is the meaning of life. That is what creation and redemption is all about. It is to bring God glory. Now I want you to keep that in your minds, that the glory of God is what this is all about. And keeping that in your mind, I want you to recall the days of Moses and Joshua. Moses and Joshua. Remember how the people... At times, they would sin so grievously that God would threaten to just wipe them out. We see this with uh, Moses and the, the golden calf incident. I don't have time to go there, but if you want to write down for future reference, Exodus chapter 32 and verses 11 and 12, the people have committed idolatry with the golden calf, and God is saying to Moses, I'm going to wipe this people out, and I'm going to Produce a new people through you, Moses. But then Moses comes back to God and he expresses a concern for the glory of God's name. He says, what will the Egyptians think if you save them from Egypt only to destroy them in the wilderness? What will they think? And then think of Joshua when that people entered the promised land. Joshua chapter 7 Verses 7 through 9 record a response that Joshua had to a similar situation. They went in, they conquered Jericho, and the man named Achan, he disobeyed God by looting from the city, and he brought guilt upon the whole nation to the degree that when they went out to fight their next battle, they lost. When they should have easily won, they lost. And Joshua, not knowing why this has happened, He comes to God and he expresses to God 
a lament for why this has happened. And he closes that prayer by saying to God, if the people wipe us out, what will you do for your great name? What will you do for your great name? In each of these cases, Moses and Joshua were pointing out that there would be no glory for God's name in the eyes of the surrounding nations if God were to rescue his people only to destroy them because of their unfaithfulness. Now we know that eventually God's people would continue in their sin to the point to where God would drive them out of the promised land. He would make them a byword among the nations because the old covenant could not change them. The old covenant could not cause them to persevere. The old covenant wasn't meant for that. The old covenant laid out God's standard of righteousness. The old covenant revealed the sinfulness of man, but it was never meant to give man a new heart, only to reveal his need for a new heart. So for God to gain glory for himself in saving a people and securing for himself a people who would persevere in faithfulness to him, a new covenant was needed. Turn back to Hebrews chapter 8, because this is the point that the preacher makes in that chapter. This, this benediction in Hebrews 13, it's tying together all of these things we've learned from the book of Hebrews. And one of those things is here in chapter 8. Verses 7 through 13, the preacher is describing why there was a need for the new covenant. He says in verse 7, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second for finding fault with them. So there was a fault in the people that the first covenant could not correct. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. So there needs to be a new covenant, not like the old one, because God, under that old one, redeemed a people, and the people didn't stay with him. That's why he needed a new covenant, so he could redeem a people, and the people would stay with him. And then he outlines in this new covenant, verses 10 through 12, the, the ways that God will enable his people to stay with, them, with him, putting his laws in their minds and writing them on their hearts giving them a knowledge of God, forgiving them of their sins. All of that is laid out in the new covenant. So let me ask you a question regarding the new covenant. Did God send his son to become a man to live a perfect life of righteousness for his people to die on a cross bearing the just wrath of God for the sins of his people and to rise again in glorious fashion to save a people in that way only to have some of those people fall away and not gain the glory he sent his son to purchase for him at the cross. Would that not defeat the purpose of having the new covenant at all? Amen. 
The whole point of the new covenant that we've been considering is that through it, God gains for himself a people who will never turn away from him, and that for the sake of his own glory. Our God of peace and our great shepherd, Jesus Christ, through the new covenant that he instituted and for the sake of his own glory, this God is the one ensuring that every one of his true children will never turn away from him. And this isn't a cheap grace sort of thing. It's not you walk an aisle, you get saved, and then you can go off, live however you want to live, and you'll still be saved. That's not what the Bible's teaching. The Bible is teaching that if you repent, you turn from your sins, and you put your trust in Christ and set out following him by the grace of God, that God will then equip you, enable you to keep following him. He will give you the desires to keep following Jesus, not to go your own way, but to stay with him. That is what the Bible teaches here. And this is what the preacher is praying for his people and for us about. And this prayer that he uttered to God, the God of peace, the God of peace has guaranteed us that his answer to this prayer is a resounding yes, because that's what Christ purchased at the cross. It cannot be any other way. So these warnings that we see in Hebrews All of God's true children will listen. We will heed these warnings. We will stay with Jesus. We will keep believing. And God is doing the work in our hearts to ensure that that happens. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for being the God of peace and for how you have extended your peace to us in Christ and how you, the self-sufficient one, are the one sustaining us. Lord, we thank you for giving us faith, causing us to believe in the Lord Jesus. And we thank you that it is you, ultimately, who is upholding our faith, even as you uphold all other things. Lord, you are sustaining our faith, and you will carry us into your presence. Our great shepherd will shepherd us through death into your great glorious presence. Lord, we thank you for the promises of the new covenant, Lord. And we thank you for the motivation that you give our hearts to follow you, this work that you've done within us. Lord, help us to make use of the means of grace, those things that you've given us that you command us to cultivate in our lives through which you do this great work in us, reading your word, praying to you, gathering together with your people. Lord, we're so often slow in our growing, Lord, and oftentimes it's because we are not making use of these things through which you work. Lord, help us to make good use of them. And Lord, any who are here who have not tasted of your peace yet, Lord, your word says there is no peace for the wicked. Lord, may you grant them repentance. May you open their eyes to the ugliness of their sin and open their eyes to the beauty of the Savior. And may you grant them repentance and faith through which they may receive your peace, Lord, your peace that will carry them for all of eternity, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.